Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Litfell Podcast by Liturgy Fellowship, Episode 4. Earlier this year, you may have seen some articles released by a group called Worship Leader Research. This group is comprised of six folks with various academic, pastoral, and music industry backgrounds who wanted to know more about the volume and types of popular worship music and understand more about what were the thoughts and attitudes of different worship leaders towards this music and the people that have created it. In July 2023, the results of their most recent survey was released, with over 400 respondents and data sets from CCLI and Planning Center Online. The data itself is really fascinating to look through, and their accompanying articles really dive into analysis of the data with some surprising results. So I wanted to sit down with uh, some of the researchers to try to understand what they found and how it can help the local worship and music leaders better understand their own context. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, we are joined by Adam Perez and Mark Jolicoeur from the worshipleaderresearch.com group. And they're going to be diving in a little bit to the research uh, about what they've been up to and why, uh, you know, the impacts of that and why it's so important uh, for folks out in the field actually doing worship. So, Adam, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us on. It's a pleasure. Well, I'd love to start us off by just, you know, kind of turning the mic over to you initially and just saying, tell us how this group came about. What are you, what are you all trying to do? What are the goals of it? What are you hoping to, to find out? Right. Well, those are kind of mutually exclusive in some respects, but obviously they connect. So how, how it came about was, um, I mean, so you've got Adam and I here, but um, so myself and another gentleman who's the really kind of the, I wouldn't call them the ringleader, although maybe I might some days, uh, Mike Tapper, who's at Southern Western University. He's the one who, uh, I was doing a project with him, I guess it was up to three or four years ago now, come to think of it. That was about the life curves of songs. We did kind of a deep dive to take a look at how long uh, songs kind of stay around in the church. And through that process, uh, we were able to connect with people like Adam and people like Shannon uh, Baker, who is uh, at Baylor University and is kind of like the the, the numbers person, I guess, kind of behind what we do. And also people like Elias Dummer, who is also on our team, who is a, uh, a, a worship leader, worship songwriter, and a market, marketer in his own right. Uh, so we just kind of like, we have been engaging with these people throughout the course of essentially kind of like researching and promoting that work. And uh, it just became really clear that we had affinities that kind of extended beyond that. And so um, we had a, a data set of CCLI songs, CCLI listings, all the way back to 1988, kind of, I guess, roughly from its inception. And so uh, we wanted to be able to kind of look at that in a in a different way. And so we wanted some different voices to be a part of it. And so this this group kind of coalesced around mm-hmm. that. And uh, but but the truth is is that it really was like a uh, just a huge spreadsheet of data, five different people. And looking at it and going, hmm, what what do we want to do with this? And so that's why I say like how we came together is kind of different from then how how the research emerged. And Adam might be able to kind of pick up the ball there and talk about yeah. how we ended up where we did. Yeah, I almost forgot that we uh, sort of started with that data set because we have largely <laughs> moved away from it in some <laughs> ways. Uh, because when we came together, really the question was, you know, what mutual interests do we have? And what kind of pastoral concerns drive those interests? And so um, one of the intersections that emerged was this question of how worship leaders relate to the music industry. That's a place that kind of all of us 
yeah, it was the middle of the Venn diagram, if you will, um, for us. And, and we had a variety of questions. So we developed kind of this two-phase research thing, kind of an ob- objective phase. What's the situation with the worship music industry right now and um, the songs and churches that lead them, which we um, we will talk about, I'm sure. And then this just yesterday uh, from, from the day we're recording here, um, our second phase, uh, how do worship leaders feel about the worship music industry as they engage with it. So we've been at this now together for almost two years as a group, um, which is just longer than two years now, I guess, right? Because it was, well, I don't know. Anyway, it's been a minute. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's been a minute. Yeah, it's awesome. So yeah, because I was fascinated to look at the people that are involved. You mentioned uh, uh, Shannon, uh, Elias, and then... uh, Mike Tapper, it looks like. And it runs the gamut. I mean, you've got some academics, you've got some worship leaders, musicians. Uh, so lots of different perspectives on that, uh, which I thought was that was really interesting to just to see the breadth of who you have looking at this and and, uh, and the perspectives that people are going to bring to that. Um, now, with you mentioned you've got kind of you had phase one, which I think was from that first data set, Mark, you may have mentioned. Well, it, I think that was maybe the, you call it the seed, the, the seed, seed from which okay. it sprang. But then we were like, oh, this is not. Uh, it became clear. You, you mentioned the idea that we have a, a variety of people that are part of it. I mean, uh, we, we're trying to have as, as broad uh, a perspective as, as possible, which is, you know, with, within reason, it's, it's tough to, to know. It's tough to have the, uh, you know, it's tough to have, wear no glasses. So we all know that we have glasses. Uh, yeah. At least three of us, two of us in this conversation currently are wearing physical glasses. Um, Adam still has good vision. So, um, so like, we, we're, okay, we've got different lenses. And so we, we wanted to kind of try to look at it through different as many different lenses as, as we were able to. And so when we did that, we looked at this kind of this CCLI data set and we, and we realized this, there's going to be some shortcomings if we decide that this is essentially all we do. A lot of people have done some really great work with the CCLI numbers. And mm-hmm. I think they're going to continue to be highly important data set for us going forward. But we were like, it's, it's, it, it is, it doesn't necessarily represent all perspectives. Now we, we know that we didn't get to all perspectives, um, but we did early on say, what if we, and I believe it might've been Shannon's suggestion. I'm not really sure, but what if we brought in uh, praise charts as an alternative to kind of round out these numbers? Uh, Cause they figured that it would, it would be more likely that say like African-American churches, for example, would use praise charts for their, for their charts than say, than say by reporting via CCLI or song select charts. So it was an opportunity to kind of at least broaden it so early on we we brought those two two data sets together as well as then kind of we we got into the evaluative uh content by having a survey but that's kind of more in the phase two uh portion of the survey and one and one thing of uh, kind of pushback we got was hey even these two data sets don't represent the whole of the church and the challenging reality as as a researcher is those are the only two data sets that are available that are that are sort of i don't know that are broad that have a broad range of reach um, have a broad reach. The uh, the other piece of data set uh, we tried to get was Planning Center Online because people know like hey my Planning Center says you know these are the top songs but Planning Center it turns out hadn't been keeping records of those lists over the decade that we were studying mm-hmm. so we couldn't just call that data and bring it into our group and there and really to our knowledge as researchers those are the only two data sets that uh, span a, span the 2010s decade and are uh, publicly available um, to research from so it's as much data as we could get really 
Right. Yeah, you see, like right now, this data set that's come out very recently from the SBC, uh, and I'm drawing a, a blank on the individual's name who's kind of championing that. I want to say Will, uh, at, but anyway, it, it, so but that's really what it would take. It would take individuals slash teams working and canvassing, you know, both individual churches and denominations, and then taking that and collating it out. Like it, so, it's to, to to say, hey, we want a representative, and even that would just be representing, you know, evangelicalism or. Or people who are using a certain worship style. Obviously, we're, we're, I know that the people who are listening to this podcast could be from Catholic perspectives. You might even have some Eastern Orthodox people. They're like, "Hey, my, my worship sets are pretty planned." Uh, you know, I get to open up the mm. open up the, the the book of liturgy, and it tells me what to do. So I understand this is a niche. Uh, it's a big niche, but it's a niche nonetheless for a lot of people. Yeah. So. That that was one of the things I noticed. I'm going to get into the kind of the, the most recent one that you released on the the 2022 survey. Yeah, I guess I guess a little bit of the background on what the what the goal of that was, what were you looking for, and what were the surprising things that came out of that? I think one of the things that uh, I was most interested in, and I think the team was too, is you know there's a lot of um, very visible or very audible kind of um, public conversation about like you know this is the music industry is like bad, it's corrupting our churches, blah blah blah. We need to have you know that like there's a lot of like. Um, there can be some loud conversation about how we should resist or how we need to, you know, and there's some pastoral right. voices too saying, hey, let's re- reconcile with this. But nobody's really taking the time to figure out uh, what do worship leaders in general actually think? Um, and, uh, you know, we don't, nobody's asked these questions publicly and at, you know, for a large data set like this before. So I think it's a really, um, I think it's a really novel thing to be able uh, to provide a sounding board for our conversations. Um, I mean, just like the first question, uh, how do you feel about the number of new songs promoted for congregational use? Like, um, in general, uh, I feel like the conversation circles I ran there are like, oh my gosh, like all these new songs, these artists put on all this, you know, but 25% of worship leaders we surveyed said they wanted more. And, you know, granted, 44 said they wanted less, perhaps, and 30% almost felt like it was just right. But um, but we can't have that conversation in a kind of concrete way without without real data and numbers to assess um, to assess from. So, um, you know, this survey, I feel like, gives us the opportunity to have an informed conversation that moves past just, you know, whoever's talking um, their prejudices about what they think is right or wrong or what worship leaders should or shouldn't do. Um, this gives us a, yeah, a kind of more cosmic sample to, to have uh, better conversations around. I did really enjoy getting into the data because, okay, you, you've got the ability in there on your website mm-hmm. to actually filter the data. And yeah. like on the questions for new songs, it's very interesting the breakdown in age. Uh, the yeah. older you get, yeah, right. the less interest you have in new yeah. songs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which Well, and, and on that point, too, I was, I was playing with those numbers just yesterday, actually. So it, it's really the 18 to 24 block that says... Um, you know, at a at a ten or fifteen point difference from the rest of the data set, that says yeah. like we could deal with more songs. You know, uh, nobody in that in that demographic said uh, I feel overwhelmed by the mm-hmm. amount of new songs. Uh, really, the question for me from that one is, you know, is is the worship is the release of worship music uh, sort of a young person's game? And mm. you know, I don't. Yeah, what does that say about, and maybe some follow-up questions here for research of, uh, you know, so how are um, older 
worship leaders navigating new releases in ways that are distinct or different from younger worship leaders. And we're going to, we're going to work on cross-referencing that data, but, um, but this just, there's so much here now to work with. Right. Um, Well, the, the data itself I think is interesting because it can help maybe people understand, okay, if you're in that younger demographic and you're hungry for those and you do have maybe resistance from older people in the congregation, I, I, you know, you can't necessarily draw correlations, but at least it highlights mm-hmm. the fact that there are going to be differences based on age. Um, uh, so there, there could be some implications yeah. for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we didn't ask. Yeah, I was just saying we didn't ask like what what worship songs these folks are using in their churches too. But it, it would be interesting to see too, like okay, the worship leaders in the fifty five to sixty five age group, like what contemporary worship songs are they using Mm -hmm. and then how do they feel about new songs right like there's a correlation there with Mm. worship practices and you know Mm -hmm. for and for the you know for the mainline churches uh, i'm thinking here of the sort of theologically mainline churches you know evangelical lutherans peace usa episcopal these kinds of congregations i mean those churches that have contemporary worship services or a second service, that's mainly still populated. It started, was started by and is populated by boomers. Like that's the best kind mm. of information that we have about those kinds of contexts. Right. That's not true necessarily of non-denominational churches or otherwise, but at least in those contexts, like contemporary worship is mm. a boomer thing. Mm. Yeah. And like Rick, what you were mentioning, like I don't, maybe there is a connection. And uh, that's a, reports are for data podcasts are for conjecture so we will conjecture <laughs> that uh, maybe may, maybe there is this kind yes. of a, a connectivity between um you know the the for lack of a better word liberal is not really what i mean but we'll say maybe the progressive slash the conservative um mm. bent that happens through lifespans right people become more conservative the older they get so could that just be a natural flow of what they're saying is that as they're younger they're like hey I want it all. Give it to me. I'll give it. And then as you get older, it just happens to be like, no, I, I'm sure. fine with kind of what I have. Maybe yeah. maybe there's yeah. something at play there. And and the and the uh, this is other research, but like the it tends to be my understanding that the songs that you sing in your process of coming to faith become some of the most sort of cherished songs that you want to keep singing right like they're they're more deeply connected for you they're your heart song if you want to use that language and so Mm -hmm. um, not always but you know in general you see that trend too so if you gotta have this sort of era of contemporary worship music say from the late 90s and that's what it means to you to express your faith in in a a sort of deep and meaningful way and you kind of carry that as you get older yeah um, yeah what need do you have for new songs as you went through the the survey, a lot of it is you know representative of okay, how are people feeling about kind of the the contemporary music scene, if you will, at the moment? What was there anything in there that was particularly surprising uh, as you started to look at the data? Something that jumped out to you all? Uh, one of the one of the interesting things that I saw in the data was in our third question about. Um, song uh selecting songs associated with major kind of major artists so we've been using this language of like the big four mm-hmm. and uh, talk about bethel elevation hillsong and passion and one of the things that was interesting to me was actually that um bethel had a much larger negative association than hillsong did and hillsong still has like a greater um 
percentage, at least in our data, a greater percentage of like people likely to choose songs from Hillsong, even though Hillsong has had more sort of public ethical, you know, uh, issues as Mm. it were. Um, and Bethel hasn't really, I mean, theological, I think there, you know, people have theological concerns, but it hasn't been the kind of like, you know, marquee headline um, scandal thing. And I thought that was, is podcasting for conjecture here, like, I wonder if something about that reveals, I mean, Hillsong has been around longer, so it's deeper in the culture. There's something mm-hmm. about that. Um, it's a sort of the institution has longevity in the in the minds and songs of congregations, but um, but I wonder if the that sense of like a disconnect with theology is a stronger repellent than an ethical scandal, which mm. to me feels like just loaded i guess (laughs) that thing to me i mean because it's a wide margin it's like five percent would never use a song from hillsong and like 15 percent would never use a song from bethel you know um Mm. and like yeah just that's just fascinating to me uh Mm. they get they've gotten a ton of negative press and it doesn't seem to have affected their polling numbers (laughs) to put it in political terms i guess yeah no it's perfect that's great great mark any anything that you you pulled out of that data that you were surprised by uh, yeah, well, um, it's not surprising anymore because it's been, I, it's kind of, we've been living with it for so long, but it, it's interesting how, and I don't have the numbers right in front of me, maybe Adam does, but like we talked about like how, how people feel about Bethel and Hillsong, but how people feel about Phil Wickham is, man, they love Phil Wickham. Like there's just something about that guy that people are like, you know what? I don't, I, his smile, his song, I just, <laughs> I'll follow him anywhere. So like he has like incredibly high ratings. And uh, yeah. early on, we, we were like, oh, isn't that fascinating? Because we did some work um, in the f- phase one when we took a look at how songs, how songs were associated. Because some people kind of pushed back on us and said, why are you saying that all of these songs are associated with one of these major, you know, the, the big four, when, you know, a song like All Sons and Daughters is... Uh, um, Great Are You Lord. Great Are You Lord. Or, and then in particular, there were some Phil Wickham songs. And we're like, well, the Phil Wickham, and so there was like, you can take a look on our, our website. There's a specific kind of a graph that shows how we got there with Phil because of the not only the co-writing with people from Bethel, but how um, how essentially his songs start to chart after Bethel versions of the songs are released. Like how that, essentially we use the term like platform, how they're platformed by these churches. And it's not unique to him. Um, but I, I just bring the point to say, he really does have these kind of like background and not even all that background connections to Bethel. And yeah. so that they are like Adam said, they're kind of, they're a hot commodity or topic when people kind of try to talk about them, but they don't seem to have those feelings whatsoever about, about Phil. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. And then also it kind of caused me like, I I'm late to the game on, on this. Part, part of my value in this is that I have a, a naivete like i get like oh that's it because i'm not as ingrained as the, as a lot of the academics are in this so i get to ask questions and one of the things that i found fascinating was um i was like why did because growing up um big worship songs were not i didn't perceive them as being products of large churches i perceived them as just kind of coming from artists or coming from labels whatever but like i didn't think of them as coming from particular church and that's kind of what we see in the 2010s decade is this really strong solidification Mm -hmm. of songs coming from 
churches, whether we consider them church movements or whatever. So it's like, why is that? And how does Phil play as a bit of an aberration to that if we have these these songs that are coming out? And uh, Shannon and Adam, through their kind of history hats, were able to explain that that's kind of the way that it was before, that it was kind of individuals. And they kind of, they brought those individuals into churches. And that's it's kind of like history repeating itself in some respects. Is like how... Um, a lot, a lot of times, individuals are brought into church communities as a way of, kind of, um, for lack of a better word, legitimating their their kind of worship output. Uh, and I, I just I find that a, a fascinating tension uh, to try to kind of behold how that happens because it's not as though Bethel is a great example. It's not as though the people who are releasing all the music through Bethel labels. And I guess this this data is from a you know we're in 2023 now. We were looking at old data. In some respects, some people would say it's not that way anymore. Fair. But it, we're still living in the aftershocks at the very least of how these things were done. And there mm-hmm. were a ton of people who were releasing music through Bethel who did come up through a Bethel system. Hillsong was kind of different. Hillsong mm-hmm. seemed like it was producing, for lack of a better word, its own people, whereas Bethel was kind of like bringing people into them. And so, if, and Phil was in some ways connected to that wave of people kind of coming into that California. Uh, church church vibe so anyway yeah. that whole thing to me is a bit of yeah. interesting yeah. and i want to say just one thing about all the data to remind listeners is you know we're, we're looking at data in the 2010s but we're also looking just at new songs that are released in the 2010s and appear on the charts in the 2010s so mm. like one response like i was like where's chris tomlin it's like well actually he isn't a significant contributor to new songs that appear on the charts in the 2010s He's still incredibly popular, but it's some of his old songs before the 2010s that continue to be popular. And, um, you know, he doesn't have more than three songs written uh, in the 2010s that appear on the charts in the 2010s. And so, in some ways, Phil Wickham is kind of, to my mind, the new Chris Tomlin. Like, the new singular name that, like, people seem to have really positive associations with. Um, as just an individual worship leader, unconnected. Not un- I mean, Chris Tom was connected to passion, but uh, he, I feel like he comes on his own terms. He has his own mm. platform. Yeah. Um, and I think we're seeing that with Phil Wickham increasingly so. That's really interesting. Yeah, you, you're talking earlier about you know studying the the kind of the rise and fall of particular songs and how long they're in. I guess the same thing happens, just like with pop music, for worship artists to, Yeah. I'm not quite yeah. sure. And Phil's I'm, been at it for twenty odd years. I mean, he's yeah. been around for a while too. Uh, to be fair to him, you know, mm. two thousand two, two thousand three, or something is mm. some yeah. of his earlier albums. Um, but yeah, becoming prominent sort of post Bethel yeah. affiliation and otherwise. But anything else in these reports that you look at this data, like why does it matter to the local worship leader, music leader, pastor, uh, whoever? What 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 should they be thinking about? Um, or questions maybe that they should be asking themselves when they're looking at this data as they can apply it to their own context and, and understand their own people better. I, I have one one piece that I think um, related to one of the, our questions, question four, sort of a, I don't feel like the, the responses were shocking. We asked, uh, you know, do you wish your church was more similar in worship culture or style to the churches or artists previously mentioned? And about half said yes and half said no, um, or half said at least sometimes. Um, and one thing I think is critical, f- like to just have on the map because if through this study in some way is recognizing how powerful 
um, this culture of worship music production is on local congregants and worship leaders' uh, expectations or hopes for what worship looks like in their own communities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you see this really well-produced, you know, sort of professionally, you know, choreographed worship song at this large concert event, uh, and you get the impression that that's what true worship looks like or the mm. best kind of worship looks like. Um, even if you don't do that consciously, but what you see in it is something that's sort of aspirational or, you, you know, you, it, it, but those that vision forms you. It forms your imagination for how to do your job better, how to, what you think your congregation should be doing when you're doing your job. Um, and, uh yeah, I just I just want to like name that as a as something that's part of this network or part of this sort of ecology of um, contemporary worship industry stuff uh, right. and how it impacts a, sort of the local church and local worship leaders. Not that it's bad if you if you do have a church that looks like that, but I mean, but if you it doesn't, um, it sort of can put a narrow kind of uh, a narrow scope around what you think is the best case scenario for, for you and your church. Yeah. Yeah. And I was saying, I was joking around before we recorded, but I was joking in, in, in truth is that the idea kind of is, and I, I've only discovered this recently is that this is the idea for me is to understand myself better, uh, how I choose songs and to be maybe more transparent than I should. I'm still only about halfway there. So I still don't really fully understand why i choose the songs that i do so one of the one of the uh questions in the survey was you know how do you find songs that you that you put in um in your your rotation and uh what was off the charts high was like live experiences like when i Mm. when i experienced them at conferences or whatever like when i when i and and when i saw that result it unlocked in me a thought to like i was at a conference in 2016 that was led by a mega church uh movement and i came back that sunday uh, and i i think i entered within the next three weeks i introduced three of the songs that i heard at that conference and i was like but and but i'll do the same thing this week so i'm at a conference or like a family camp ish thing this week and i'll hear songs on on these services that i have heard before like on mp3s on youtube uh did you and just I, say MP3s? Who says that anymore, Mark? <laughs> it's on my iPod. It's on my Zoom. It's I my say Zoom that play. as somebody who studies cassette tapes. So I mean, just I just want to be full full disclosure. But sorry, go on on your MP3 no, that's, player. That's so good on my on my LP. Um, <laughs> no, LPs are cool. MP3s oh, and cassettes are not. That's true. That would be killing me. <laughs> so in 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 all of these in all these things i will hear them and they'll fly by and but i'll be led in them one time like i'll be led especially if it's if i'm led competently which i think kind of speaks to what adam was saying earlier yeah. about this um the aspirational aspect of it like if, if i experience like i can think of one song in particular that happened to me at this exact same camp two years ago i heard the song before didn't care got led in it one time well, and then I was like, oh, I want to introduce this song. And so I was like, I, I, and, and it, it only now is clicking in me that I'm like, the experience of the mm-hmm. song really changes how I feel about the song, right? And so um, so I'm understanding that better. And, and yet I still look at my lists and I go, 
why those ones? Like, I, I still, I, I don't know. I, 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 and so I feel like I'm closer, um, but I feel like there's so much more room to go to understand what it is inside of us that makes us say this one and not that one, mm-hmm. uh, this key and not that key. Like, like how, how does that happen? So that's really what we want to do is we want to help all of us. Uh, yeah. So it's going to take more work ahead. And so people who are listening to this podcast, please uh, continue to follow our work, continue to kind of, you know, uh, like and subscribe. No, no, but, but just like, you know, engage, <laughs> engage that, with subscribe, it yeah. <laughs> on your MP3 player. You can do that, right? <laughs> And this is, uh, you're just uh, like reminding me of why I think like the Passion Conference is like the most genius marketing tool. Um, (laughs) Like, I mean, you get like the most impressionable group in a massive arena and you invite all of like the most famous people that they know and then they produce like the most highly and well produced like, you know, production. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. all of them go home and go, I want to do that at my church. I want to, you know, if I, if they're already leading somewhere, they're going to lead some of those songs. You're like, yeah. and it's not nefarious. And it need no, 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 not no. be nefarious in any way. Like no, it's not, no, no. it need not be even Machiavellian or like premeditated. It could just yeah. be, like it's you just said a earlier. Very, yeah. It's what we expect. So it, it, it's a it's very real human experience. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Now, so it, to all our friends on Liturgy Fellowship who are writing songs and releasing <laughs> albums, great. Keep doing that and make sure you're performing those songs. At the Passion Conference. Ex- <laughs> well, if yeah. possible, at the yeah. Passion Conference. And actually, well, as we've seen in our data, to be fair, as we've seen in our data, the influence of passion music as such, not necessarily the conference, we didn't ask about the conference, that we did ask about live events, Um the passion music as such is sort of waning in its influence um, as Bethel seems to become more, you know, have, have the, mo- Bethel has the most songs on the top 100 that were released, written and released mm-hmm. in the 2010s. Um, and Bethel musicians play at passion anyway, but <laughs> to the liturgy fellowship songwriters, make sure you have, you are performing your songs in communities, powerful, you know, there well you go. done. You know, it, that's the way to get it in people's It ears. sounds like what you're advocating for is kind of a, a, a Litfell arena tour mm. where we just mm. we just go across and we play all that's kinds right. of songs that's from like all kinds of jam, people. Winter Jam, but just Liturgy Fellowship. Exactly. Exactly. I love this idea. I love this idea. Yeah, it would be probably, I mean, knowing the Liturgy Fellowship folks, like Rachel's going to be like, we're going to have just a lament tour and everybody's like you know what guys i think i don't know i can do that for three hours i don't think uh (laughs) right right sorry rachel love you uh the the, uh i think it's fascinating also because coming back to the passion conferences and how that can impact us uh, there's been a number of discussions at different times uh, on the group about um the the expectation or the desire for professionalism uh, like there was a discussion about autotune. Um, mm-hmm. Where should autotune be used? It's a great tool, right? I use it. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of recording. Where does that fit into the thing? Or, you know, I've run into some churches that their goal is to make sure that everything they play sounds like the Hillsong CD. And so they use tracks as well as a lot of musicians, but that's that's their goal. You know, there's I guess there's pros and cons to that, but it is interesting to think, okay, if you have that desire and you're not in an environment that has the people, the experience, the kits to be able to do that, that can be, that can be a frustration, mm-hmm. um, which I guess leads itself, it's a little bit more of a pastoral discussion amongst mm-hmm. 
leaders in a, in a particular church in that environment. So, um, What does good worship sound like? I mean, that's yeah. the – to me, that's the essential question. Even with my students here at Belmont, you know, the, um, the kind of question of like what a powerful – because power seems to be an important metric, but what does a powerful worship like experience sound like? Well, mm. it sounds like a full band. It sounds like, you know, we have pads – you know, we have no dead time, no silent sort of um, moment. You know, it's all seamless. And, you know, like, but when that becomes sort of aesthetically and ethically sort of intertwined um, with the sound of worship as, like, worship as worship, like, that's when it gets hairy for me. Um, that worship in, in the imagination of the worshiper, worship only sounds one kind of way. Yeah. yeah. It has a particular aural you know, space, uh, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. things that don't sound like that aren't experienced as worship or yeah. it's, like, it's difficult to experience them as worship. It's right. like when they're flipping through the pages of their, their Bible and they see the word worship, like, do you think it gets to the point where it could ever be like that hyper, like to be like, this is what it probably sounded like in ancient Israel. I mean, like, it's it already, probably had the, <laughs> the, <laughs> right, right, well, right. you're joking, but like, I'm not really, but, I, like I'm wanting um, to, yeah, the, I mean, the total collapse of the words worship and music in contemporary sort of evangelical, charismatic, and Pentecostal, like, that's a, that's already sure. that's already happened, and that's an extension of the kind of um, theology and practice that, that, you know, our study is following up on just some decades later. Um, so, I don't, yeah, you're joking, but not, not probably. It's funny you mention that, because that was one of the questions on my list for you all is you call it worship leader research, but it's all about music was, you know, have you guys had that discussion about, are you going to look at the wider worship set? Are you just going to focus on music? Is that, are you just saying, well, that's how people use it. So that's just how we use it. I don't, I don't know any thoughts on that. I mean, we'd expand it, but I mean, it's worship leader research. So it's, it's not worship research it's worship leader research so we're kind of yeah, trying yeah. to getting trying to crack into the 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 yeah. craniums of folks like you and i uh, yeah. it's hard hard to get in adam's head because he has hair there to protect <laughs> it but um so yeah like that would be the less yeah, of and course. less of it all the time <laughs> yeah. So, yeah i mean of course we would but yeah. yeah yeah and i think too to your point like mark like worship leader in the kind of colloquial sense is somebody who leads music yeah um yeah and that, yeah. whether that's good or bad yeah. uh, or you know there are upsides and downsides there are opportunities mm-hmm. and challenges with that mm-hmm. um but in contemporary use and i think for us like all of us are musicians and so we like that's instinctually like what we care about um yeah so to be fair it's not uh liturgist research you know it's not mm-hmm. um it's not What's the, you know, uh, oh gosh, what's the word I'm looking for? Anyway, it's not, you know, we're not studying other yeah. kinds of liturgical leaders um, yeah. mm-hmm. where there's this contemporary forum that we're yeah. interested in. It's, just, it's, it's interesting to me how that how that has kind of collapsed, as you said, into, oh, the worship leader is yeah. the person that yeah. plays the music in front of everybody. But uh, but obviously different contexts have yeah. different words and, and terms yeah. for, yeah. for a lot of those. Music minister things. research, we should have called it. Yeah, yeah it, doesn't, got, it doesn't flow. I got called a music minister. Uh, what had been I guess about six months ago. I'm like, are you st- are, are you our, our music minister? And I was like, whoa. <laughs> Where? I mean, I would have been if you hired me 15 years ago, but no, not right now. See, right? 
But because, because, and that's like, again, the thing, the collapse, like it's called a worship leader because the idea that any, any activity outside of music or any idea, any activity of worship is primarily, first and foremost, is a musical activity like that. You've already, we've already like given ourselves culturally over to that, you know. I mean, like, so different, different people, so it will break it down. So if I said worship planner research. Maybe people would say, oh, well, that includes things like communion and that, in- that includes mm-hmm. the prayers of the service or whatever. And mm-hmm. I mean, and, and in my context, mm-hmm. that is what it means, right? So yeah. like everyone mm-hmm. has, everyone has obviously different kind of ways that they're going to yeah. use those words. Yeah. But yeah. yes, yeah. If, if we did a poll question and said, what does worship leader mean? Probably it's going to be music leader. But yeah. then on the next one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, good. Uh, yeah, one of the books I read, uh, it was last year, was History of Contemporary Praise and Worship, uh, Lester Ruth and Lin Sui Hung, which I loved. And I think, Adam, you and maybe some other folks contributed to that, but that the way it dove into the history and how that theology and that, that wording sort of developed, I think, was particularly fascinating. Uh, just understanding my own head and why I do the things the way I do them. So, it's really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, what the other thing you all mentioned is this. Obviously, the study is very North American uh, focused. Um, when I think of CCLI, I do tend to think of you know Hillsong, Bethel, contemporary world, which is also generally white. Now I know that Mark, you mentioned getting praise charts information, maybe to broaden that out a little bit. A- any thoughts on you know it is still a fairly fairly narrow topic. How how could we get data in other places and, and broaden that a little bit? Because I'm just fascinated. We're not talking at all about the rest of the world. This is just North America. Um, well, that's even not a slice exactly of that. true. So, first of all, CCLI actually is technically global in the sense that different churches can from alts from across the pond and from yeah. like theoretically from African countries, whatever. Like they they could use that uh, that copyright licensing program, um, and they do have metrics that come in from across the world. They're just centralized in North America. And to say North America, I mean, is I'm not a geographer, but I don't think Australia is in North America, right? So, like, there's, there are, <laughs> there are, the, it is somewhat, it is somewhat global in terms of how this works. Uh, the West or whatever that might mean, the North Atlantic, like, you know, yeah, th- yeah, there's yeah, a, yeah. Cu- how about this? There's a culture that is largely overrepresented by what's by what's going on here. I think we would be aware of that. Mm-hmm. But as we mentioned before, A, problematically or otherwise, the five of us who are involved in this so far are from that dominant culture. Sure. So we would have to acknowledge that it would be ridiculous for us to not say that out loud. But the other thing is it's, it's not as easy, it seems, and not even just not as easy. Like, we've looked. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, there are no databases that are readily or possibly even at all available from these other places. So yeah. if you wanted to have like a global reach, my goodness, mm-hmm. you would have to have like a real mm-hmm. significant thing. But anecdotally, you will see that this dominant culture is dominant, uh, has has cultural cachet and influence across the evangelical world. So um, you will see, if you wanted to just like go into YouTube and Google any of the songs from the top list, but like maybe put like Africa or put like Asia and just put those mm. words in and you'll see that those songs are being used there. Now they also have their own songs that are being used there, but, but they are using these Hill songs. They're using these Bethel songs. They're using these passion songs. Like they, they do, they are being translated in other languages. So my church is very multi uh, ethnic. 
-hmm. So it's very easy for the most part for me to find uh, Portuguese lyrics for uh, Hillsong songs. It's very easy for me to find, like uh, I'll find Mm -hmm. some African verses for some of the, in different dialects for certain verses, they exist. Yeah. Now the the inverse is not true. We know that, right? So we're not, and Adam is the one who who pointed this out to me myself. It's not as though, now Waymaker is this like super outlier in how all this works. It's a song that started from a Nigerian culture. but as it stood, it would not have infiltrated our broader context. It had to be kind of code switched for it to work mm. in, our, in our kind of climate and context. Mm-hmm. So right. anyway, it's a bit of a rant to say we know yeah, and we can't see a solution. And I would say that it's ambiguous. Uh, the, the problem is ill-defined. Yeah. I don't even know what you would say the problem is at this point in time because yeah. it's, it's complicated. Yeah, you know, I was. I asked the question because I know some occasionally, you know, people bring up, uh, "Oh gosh, well, you're only looking at X culture or whatever." Sure. Um, so it's you know sometimes helpful to acknowledge that um, and just say, "Yeah, okay, here's what it is." So, yeah. so. And I want to say too, just to double down on what Mark was saying too, it, it is the case that these songs have purchased uh, sort of one directional, like these songs are being used in a variety of cultural other cultural contexts race ethnicity language Hmm. otherwise um but but like mark said the inverse is not true we're not generally like receiving those songs back so it may appear like um these songs only represent say white churches white evangelical pentecostal and charismatic churches um but what you'd be missing is uh ask ask an african-american church musician if they use Bethel Hill song and elevation uh, songs, and I'm gonna guess nine times out of ten, the answer is gonna be yes. Hmm. Um, but are you using, you know, JJ Harrison? Are you using even like CC Winans or like, you know, are you using Kirk Franklin? Are you using like any major mainstream like, um, at, you know, quote unquote gospel black gospel artists songs? in your white context no and so it get it's it's um to me it's like there's some white guilt involved and people going well what about non-white yeah. churches and <laughs> right. uh and i'm going like in general not always but i'm going like you know if you're white and you have that concern that's valid but also like i haven't really received that feedback generally from my african-american and latino colleagues because they know how important hillsong and bethel songs are in mm, their context right Right. And so, yes, the worship leaders in particular in this survey may be predominantly white. CCLI churches that are represented on their list may be predominantly white. We don't know. I assume it is, but, you know, don't actually have the data, so I can't say for sure. And the culture of this music extends much further. Right. Yeah. Okay. No, so, that's fair. No, yeah. that's that's great. I was just curious because it's, it's one of those topics that comes up on a regular basis so i thought well yeah. i'll yeah. i'll ask the folks that are actually doing yeah. all the research on this yeah. so it's a good yeah, question and i would love to i would love to support a project that surveyed individually churches and other you know that identify with other um you know cultural traditions or, or uh, based on race or denomination or whatever yeah. um that is a different project than the project yeah. we're doing it would be a good project and perhaps it is in the future something we might you know engage with but yeah. um yeah. yeah that's great well speaking of the projects that you're currently on what's what's next you, you talked a little bit about 
you know, kind of phase one, phase two. You've got some articles out there uh, that are really fascinating to read, especially kind of the, you know, what was the one, the uh, the worship music industry is younger than you think, uh, mm-hmm. which I thought was a really great analysis of, of various bits and bobs out there. What, what's next for you all? We're going to write out this uh, survey into the sunset for the next few uh, f- uh number of months so we'll we released the pure data set yesterday i'm uh i don't know how how quickly you're turning around but i guess it was july 11th july 11th uh, 2023 is when we released uh, the the data set for the survey um and so there's a couple of like kind of like very brief paragraphs that say isn't this interesting isn't this interesting and then basically the conclusion at the bottom is more to come uh, and so you know religion news service and a few other uh news agencies have already kind of picked it up and put their own spin on it. Predictably it's sure. salacious and you know, yeah. uh, all of the, all the things uh, <laughs> yeah. that won't be our take. Uh, we're very yeah. ironic. So, um, but it will be, nonetheless, we will, we will go, okay, we will kind of take some data from this, we'll collate it a little bit with some of the kind of volume stuff that we released earlier on. And then we'll say in light of this, what mm-hmm. might, uh, and mm-hmm. so we'll do some kind of more deep dives yeah. in those. Those will yeah. roll out over the next number of months. Yeah. And we'll include, we actually took comments on a number of the questions, so Mm -hmm. that's not represented in the data that we released, but we'll be um, working through the um, kind of, yeah, the more sort of messy descriptions of things that people put in the comments. um, Yeah. As we, I I assume we'll have an article at least about each of the, each of the questions and then probably other articles cross, you know, referencing the questions. Yeah. Um, and then I think, you know, the other piece that we're talking about is, um, you know, one of the gifts of this project has is that we've become aware of and, and become connected with other researchers who are interested in working to expand the scope of um, the kind of research mm. we're doing and, and using sort of the, our worship leader research reach as a platform that can continue the conversation. And um, uh, we'll see where that goes, but we don't have any concrete kind of plans yet uh, for okay. what it what it will be but um we're excited well, about it the the stuff that's on there already is fascinating to look for look through uh as i said the articles are, are great i really enjoyed reading those so worshipleaderresearch.com is is the site right uh and then i guess the main page right now is the is the most recent data set that you just released yeah depending yeah. on when this goes there'll have to be some articles in there and you can find us on socials at worship leader research as well from most of the even on threads we I didn't run away. From, we have we haven't abandoned we haven't abandoned Twitter, uh, but we have we have we're also on Threads. So right. we're really current. MP3s uh, will be uploaded <laughs> forthwith. I was, I was going to ask, can you get MP3s on Threads now? So. <laughs> you can hotlink them. But. That's awesome. Uh, well, Adam, Mark, thank you so much. Uh, that was great. Really fantastic discussion. Thanks so much for being here. And uh, yeah, please come join in the discussion on uh, the Liturgy Fellowship page. Yeah, thank we'll you. see you on the internet. Yeah, appreciate it.